Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. This week on the program, I bring you the final part of a three-part special featuring the keynote address of Alok Vaid Manon's speech at the Listen Conference. A few weeks ago on the program, I mentioned that I attended the Listen Feminist Conference in Melbourne in October. Listen exists to spark and cultivate a conversation from a feminist perspective around the experiences of marginalised people in Australian music. Many of us have attended multiple conferences, and while we may engage in conversations that uplift and reinvigorate us, it's less common that a speech at a conference causes us to completely rethink some of our ideas and political perspectives. For me, Alok's keynote speech was one such moment. Alok Vaidmanon is a trans femme South Asian writer, performance artist and community organiser based in New York City. For the past seven years, they've organised in solidarity with racial, economic and gender justice movements worldwide. Over three episodes of Accent of Women, I'll broadcast Alok's keynote address. Make sure you don't miss any of it The podcast will be available from 3CR's website and I will give you those details at the end of the show. I wrote this caption. Uh, I took a really great selfie. I would show you if I could, but I I, I don't want to. Um, And I wrote this caption. I took this selfie before leaving the house today. This is before a man right outside my door looked at me and said, what the fuck is that? His friends began to follow and record me until I couldn't take it, so I got into a taxi. In the car, I looked at the selfie of me, and I remember how powerful I felt when I took it. I remember how fun it was to get ready. I remember the delight of seeing my chest hair and my lipstick and my floral all together. Most of all, I remember feeling safe, feeling at peace. I've been thinking a lot recently about what selfies mean to me and why I'm so moved by them. Today I remember in the car that what selfies allow me to do is remember who I am, what I am fighting for, and what the world I want to create looks like. A selfie is an earnest invitation to the world I am making for myself. WTF is the number one reaction I get leaving my house, and I feel like I'm finally coming up with an answer. What you see is someone just trying to figure it out. Someone desperately trying to remember what it means to prioritize my joy over your fear. What you see is someone trying my best to find meaning in a world that continually thinks that it knows what's best for me. What you see is someone who is equally confident and equally terrified. It's someone who needs your help to get free. When the 17th person takes a photo of me without my consent, I begin to wonder if I have a body anymore. I, a recognition that at some point, so many hands and eyes consume me that there was simply nothing left for myself. This is what happens when the private parts become public domain, and I say V instead of my because I looked in between my legs and saw a chat forum happening there. I tried to chime in but got blocked. Have? How naive it would be to believe I could own something that others hold on to so dearly. The other day, my doctor asked me to breathe and I tried, but I forgot how. There was simply no frame of reference. All of the images I remember of myself involve me doing everything but breathing. There is no animated gif for that. A. 
There are hundreds of photos of me circulating in text threads and web forums across the world. Look at the souvenir I saw in New York. Look at this thing today I saw at the mall. Hashtag me, hashtag same, hashtag my BF, hashtag WTF, hashtag goals. What I've learned is that it is only socially permissible to identify with me online. There's a type of loneliness that comes from everyone staring at you but no one seeing you. Every time someone takes a photo of me, I want to give them a hug to remind them that I am real. But the moment a meme becomes a person, the screen cracks and there is violence. Body. I've come to the conclusion then that the only place I'm allowed to exist as a photograph. Exhibit A, a costume for a play. Exhibit B, how inspirational, read, I would never. A transgressive model breaking down gender norms. Exhibit C, an art installation. Exhibit D, a social media darling who inspires you to not to only like the photo, not stop the violence. Exhibit E, share this, LMAO. A monkey wears a dress and calls himself a woman. Exhibit me, exhibit me to prohibit me. Thank you. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. Alok concluded their speech with that piece of spoken word, although that piece of spoken word started out as a caption on a selfie. The session moved into question time. The first question related to how Alok prepares for public presentations such as this, specifically whether they rehearse or systematically redraft ideas, concepts and messages. No, I don't rehearse. Uh, everything I write is my first draft. And the reason I do that is because I started writing when I was 13 years old and I was an emo kid, um, which meant that I listened to like bands like uh, something corporate or like Dashboard Confessional and, and Bright Eyes, which I still love. And I would just sob in my room and write write down what I was feeling. And then I'd post it on my Zanka. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then people would be like, you're a poet. And I'd be like, no, this is just my feelings. And that's still, that's still what I say. Um, I think it's really messed up that we live in a world that calls people being honest poetry because what that does is it make it so that art is the only place we can be real. And that's what I think I was trying to get at, is that I think that Western culture is so deeply ritualized lying that performance can be one of the only places we actually can have to escape from that. So for me, everything that I read comes from my heart because it is my heart. It's like spilled out. So I already know how to say it because I already feel it. The next two questions were actually asked by me. I put to Alok that while the talk had altered my thinking and understanding of gender and the trans movement, I felt that what was absent from the discussion so far was an analysis of class. I asked Alok to discuss that a little bit. I also raised another issue that had been weighing on my mind. For me personally, through my 20s and into my 30s, my political journey has taken me from very radical separatist feminist ideology to where I would more likely put myself today, and that's a socialist. I still hold on to some of my radical feminist ideas, though, particularly that gender is a construction, it's not real. 
and I put to Alok that their discussion was unique for me in that I don't often hear the trans movement reject gender. Rather, I had felt that the trans movement has upheld gender stereotypes. I asked why are dresses and makeup a woman thing, while sports and masculinity is a man thing? And in this context, I asked, how do you actually change the world if part of a movement to reject binary gender also reinforces it? Thank you so much for your questions. I appreciate them. Um, To the first question about class, I think you're totally right. I think what's especially interesting about gender is when you look at the history of gender, only certain classes were given permission to be read as beautiful women, even within white culture, right? And that a lot of that had to do with consumption in a capitalist economy. So, oh, you're wearing this beautiful dress versus you have to wear a type of uniform as a worker that kind of degenders you in a way, right? So I think class is totally at play here, but I think the type of discourse that I'm trying to conjure is that regardless of class, a narrative of white cis womanhood was circulated across the British Empire to justify colonization, right? And I think there's a difference between the reality of people's experiences and the representation of how governments and state policy implement them. And this is why I actually think that white working class cisgender women have a stake in the liberation of trans people, because in a lot of ways they become trans by being unable to to, to fit into that representation of rich white cis womanhood that they get circulated into, right? So when I'm saying the narrative or the discourse or the idea or the paradigm of white cisgender womanhood, what I mean is literally things like the reason that white women often were not allowed to go to India was because um, the climate was so hot that they might have sexual proclivities, right? And there's this narrative there that like, oh, white cis women cannot have sexual proclivities and a fear there that white cis women could actually desire non-white men, right? And so there's this continual discourse that gets created about white cis womanhood that actually has seeped into our feminism without a history. And that's why I get so mad at cisgender feminism. Like, do you know the history of this discourse? The history of this discourse of rooting your entire political imagination on the basis of your vagina actually has to do with a conservative state policy that only understands women as reproductive vehicles to produce new settlers and new people to build a nation. And that actually for you to say that my body belongs to me is an anti-colonial move because your body is not allowed to belong to you by a state that requires you to produce children to colonize and settle other places, right? So I think that's what I'm, the sort of idea that I'm trying to relate to around white cis womanhood, but I think what I would add is that what the way that I understand transness is not actually those of us who are gender variant, but those of us who are class variant, those of us who are racially variant, those of us who are migrants, because the truth is gen- the gender binary is upheld by white, able-bodied, cisgender, upper-class norms, and those of us who don't align with those types of identities get disenfranchised. But I think trans people are some of the only people who have had the audacity to say that's what's happening. <laughs> I think in a lot of other communities there's still this deep and perpetual love and reliance to these tropes, whereas trans people, because of the violence that we experience is so explicit, we've learned like, okay, this is not working, let's start over. Um, About changing the world. Um, So I I actually wanna push back on the way that you phrased that question, because I think that there's this trans misogynist thing that happens where we blame trans people for upholding gender. And that essentially looks like that we blame binary medicalized trans women for not being liberationists because they've bought into the patriarchy and feel like they have to modify their body. That has a lot of echo uh, tones of a sort of trans-exclusionary radical feminist that um, says that trans women can only be permissible in feminism if they're good feminists and good with their bodies versus just like 
being women. <laughs> like there has to be this expectation there because last time I checked, women are not, cisgender women are not upheld to a standard of being feminist in order to have your gender be recognized or affirmed, right? And that it's totally possible for all of us, regardless of our genders, to endure and internalize patriarchy that shouldn't disqualify us from our identities. And I, I'm less interested in blaming trans people for upholding gender and more interested, and I think what I was trying to get to in my speech, of critiquing a culture that requires us to participate in gender in order to be safe, right? The majority of trans people who medically transition or who speak about gender in ways as if it's real are not doing so because they intrinsically and fundamentally believe this, but because they know that if they don't, they could die. They literally are making decisions where if I do not pass in this particular way, every single day of my life, people are going to have scrutiny of me and I'll either want to kill myself or someone will want to kill me. So I think it's, it's really reductive to blame trans people who are navigating a world where every single part of their body is scrutinized for having to participate in patriarchy. And it's the same sort of misogynist logic that blames feminine cisgender women for buying into the patriarchy. And the undertones there is that the only way to be gender neutral or to escape from gender is to be masculine. And I'm so bored of that conversation because femininity can be gender neutral. It's a misogynist equation that sees ending gender as ending femininity. I'm interested in ending gender policing and not interested in ending femininity. In terms of what we do going forward, what I would ask is for us to understand that we will never have liberation of women, of trans people, of feminists, unless we have indigenous sovereignty. Like I began the sort of speech saying, unless we have like the end of anti-black police violence in my country, unless we have the end of like draconian and horrific refugee and migrant policies, like these are some of the most pressing issues of our time that somehow are not elevated as gender issues. But the gender binary is the same system that creates borders between countries, as the same system that creates this idea of foreigner. All these binaries are intersectional, right? And so I think there's this thing that happens where trans people of color like me are, are congratulated for being intersectional. We're like, wow, like you fit so many different things. And what I, just, what, I, what I just want to remind people is that you're deeply intersectional too. It's just that your whiteness gets invisibilized, your cisness gets invisibilized. And I want you to think about how your intersectional identity makes you pursue a political agenda that only enfranchises yourself. And that actually, if you were really, I mean, I fundamentally believe that the things that have the capacity to transform and liberate us are the things that we've been taught to destroy and fear. So I think that the things that give us the most anxiety in the feminist movement are often the things that could actually liberate us. Like, we have to actually get a little uncomfortable and actually sh not just show up like for other issues, but understand that the liberation of these people, Aboriginal people, Indigenous people, Black people, trans feminine people, sex workers, people with disabilities, etc., means the liberation of everyone else, right? It's not from a place of like, I, I hate discourses of allyship or showing up or whatever, because what that does is it makes it so the only reason that you should show up is because you have some weird paternalistic desire to like uplift someone versus a deep and sincere political analysis that without that liberation, you will never be free. And I think there is no better testament than the cisgender feminist movement. Right now, we're in an anti-abortion moment in my country where there's a long, long, long list of policies that are trying to effectively criminalize cisgender women, trans men, non-binary people from getting access to abortions, right? And the, the discourse that's being produced around this is very much still a very vaginic-centric 
sort of narrative of like, my right to my vagina, here's my vagina thing. And I just want to shake everyone and be like, this is what the state actually wants you to do. They actually want you to only engage in the terms of genitalia versus push a more substantive politic of misogyny. And the truth is misogyny is what's at the core here because what one of the things that heteropatriarchal colonialism did was teach us to devalue and degrade femininity. And what we should be fighting for in all of our feminist movements is not just the right for women to have rights, but rather the right for femininity to be liberated itself, which is a much more ambitious political agenda that I actually think a lot of cisgender feminists are not interested in. Because the other thing that trans politics allows us to do is to give us a language to talk about masculinity outside of cisgender men. And that's something I think we really need to be talking about more. The reason that trans feminine people like me are systematically denied and erased from the feminist movement is because you still see us as men, whereas you do not see the trans men and butch women in your spaces as masculine because you still reduce us to our genitalia. So there's still this colonial equation that happens where we actually are once again kicking out the very people who have a theory of the politics and the lived experience to actually create a liberatory feminist politic are kicked out because they're really simplistic ideas of what our genders are. And I should also add that what's really also frustrating about um, the current political discourse, and I think what I'm trying to do in this answer is also shift responsibility from trans people towards the feminist movement, because I'm really tired of this, this paradigm that's set up where trans people get invited to the feminist movement and have to be good trans to be accepted, versus the feminist movement having to realize that it has to restructure, re-architecture its entire self to be worthy of my presence. Because I'm not interested in being here if we're just gonna sit around and do some basic colonial politics. It's not interesting to me. So what's more interesting to me is if we can actually create a bigger narrative of what gender self-determination looks like. That's what I think we need to shift our rhetoric towards is gender self-determination. And that mandate is so large because how can prison, people in prison determine their genders when they have uniforms? How can people in refugee camps determine their genders when they're put in detention centers, right? How can people who are poor, how can people who are homeless determine their genders? What it would look like to create a world where every single person could say, this is who I am, and not only be able to say that, but be able to articulate and express that, and not only be able to articulate and express that, but not experience violence because of that, and not only experience violence for that, but be encouraged for that, would involve the complete destruction of the world as it is now, and a recreation of a world that is new and possible, right? So what I often offer is shifting our, our language away from women's rights, or even like feminism, to really talking about gender self-determination, which I think holds so many of our experiences, and understands that gender is part of other big move movements of self-determination, of land, self-determination of property, self-determination of work. The final question came from a trans-feminine participant at the conference. They asked Alok what brought them to this platform and what the most gratifying aspects of their writing and performing was. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm like, here I am, 25 years old, like performing, and I'm like, how did this happen? <laughs> like, did I actually consent to doing this? And then I actually, I'm here to tell you guys and you all uh, that I did not. I had to perform because that was the only place in my life I was allowed to be honest about being depressed and it's suicidal growing up in the town that I did. I had to perform because it was the only place in my life I could wear a costume and then actually experience something real. 
And so now here I am on the other side of that feeling all like accomplished, but I'm like, actually, this is really tragic that I don't actually know what I would have been or what I would have been interested in if I didn't have to go to performance in order to survive. So I have a conflicted relationship with performance because it's like wonderful, it's cute, I can like talk about how liberating it is, but I didn't consent to it. Um, and that's why I really reject this idea that we need to have like some sort of like artistic training or like some sort of like background in art because actually like for me, I had to learn how to be an artist because I, 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 was, I literally was cast as a cisgender man from the minute I was born and had to perform that role, darling. And that was a very difficult role, as you might imagine. And then I had to cast the role of trying to be trans. That was a difficult role. And then I had to cast the role of trying to be a woman. That was an even more difficult role. And at some point you just realize I'm really good at acting and performing because I've had to be. So in terms of like what I get from it, <clears throat> I think that it's often the things that we develop as survival mechanisms that we, we learn to actually find happiness and joy from because we have to. So because performance was a survival method for me, initially it was just more like, oh great, gonna go traumatize myself in front of hundreds of people, woo, awesome. But then now, I think that the thing that I enjoy the most about performance <clears throat> is less about the thing that it does for my body and more about the potential to create a space for people to cry. That's literally, I, I, I no longer have sort of like, my art is revolutionary, my art is gonna change the world. I'm like, okay, that's a large mandate. I don't know, my art is my art. But my art, what I can promise you, is gonna give you an invitation to, to weep. And not just cry, but to weep and to be destroyed. Because the truth is, like, I, I really believe that we need to be talking more about mental health outside of the language which is like mental health, because that's even just such a, we need to be talking about depression. We need to be talking about depression is actually something that all of us have, <laughs> not just something that people who are medicalized have it. We need to be talking about how oppression actually is somatic and that actually the same neurological pathways that process physical pain are the ones that process emotional pain. So that those of us who grow up as emotionally stigmatized identities never get over our trauma and are told over and over again by white medical discourse that we have to overcome our trauma. I don't think it's possible to overcome trauma when trauma becomes us because what you're asking me to do is to kill myself. That's the only way to overcome trauma when it's part of you. So what I try to do in my performance is to create a space to create a different relationship with people's trauma. That's like, hey, actually, I see your trauma and it's fucking awesome. <laughs> and like, I see your trauma and it's fucking beautiful because I understand that you're broken like me and I don't require you to be fixed or coherent or perfect or wonderful or articulate or feminist to be worthy of that love and respect. And that's what I want to do in my performance now. It's less about the art and more about the therapy. And the truth is, art is the only way to actually get real therapy anymore. So that's it. <laughs> And that concludes our three-part broadcast of Alok Vaidmanon's keynote address at the Listen Conference. If you're interested in any of Alok's poetry and other written works, go to returnthegaze.com. That's R-E-T-U-R-N-T-H-E-G-A-Y-Z-E.com. Or you could also go to darkmatterpoetry.com. Additionally, if you want to learn more about Listen, go to their website, which is listenlistenlisten.org. A big thank you to the conference organisers for the use of this audio. And that's all we have time for today. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. And that's the digit three, not spelled out in letters. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.